Jarrell, could you ring the bell, please? Thank you very much. Gotta love the bell. The bell is, it feels like a boxing match. Okay. Um, so, beautiful images we've got from Enid Chadwick, a Catholic friend of mine was boasting about how rich the church year was, and he put these beautiful images on Twitter. And I, and I was a little bit too proud to return. Actually, she's Anglican. Um, and this was a glorious um, compilation of these wonderful 1911 church designs that I'm employing. We'll talk about them in a moment. So that's where these images come from. Let's begin by saying the colic that you either have said or will say together. I know you can barely see it, but hopefully big enough font. O God, by the leading of a star, you manifested your only Son to the peoples of the earth. Lead us, who know you now by faith, to your presence, where we may see your glory face to face. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. I have spoken about, as we go through the virtues interspersed with the church here, about taking some time for silence in our catechesis session. So let's do that for just a moment right now with this collect in mind. Amen. We will not review where we've been. There will be time to do that in the weeks to come. But we are again in the middle of a virtues and vices session, which is all a setup to celebrating the Reformation. There's a reason that the reformers didn't like this discussion of virtues and vices. Uh, and they cut through it with the message of grace. And we are going to, we're moving in that direction. It is the 500th anniversary year of the Reformation, and we're, we're building in that direction. Thankfully, we have both in this congregation because we are, we have a split identity between our high church identity and our evangelical identity, and we have been emphasizing our high church identity for a couple of years now. Remember, Mike talked about Galatians. And then we talked about the church year, and then we had this wonderfully rich, Catholic, small c, exploration of what it means to be an Anglican. And now we're doing the virtues and vices, and we are ripe to go back to that message of grace alone that shattered this system in a beautiful way. And yet we emphasize that for so long that now this is, this, our hearts long for the tradition of the virtues and vices. You can have it all at this place. That's where we're headed. And... As we, it, it might be confusing, but at the same time, that's part of what it means to be at All Souls. It's the All Souls Circus that we've talked about before. So we've talked about all these different suggestions, and it's all on audio. If you missed any, and I missed a ton, I was away, um, you can go back and hear them. And it is a wonderful way to get to know people in our congregation. And as we move ahead, again, interspersed with the church year, which we're doing today, we're going to talk about gratitude, the four 
cardinal virtues, we're going to talk about faith, hope, and love. It's those classic seven, the four cardinal virtues, which a pagan could conceivably arrive at, but then the theological virtues, faith, hope, and love, that only are possible through Christ. So we'll be thinking about all these things together. And this is a time, I don't I mean, everyone says that Christmas is a time of depression. I think that Epiphany is a time of depression. We kind of uh, ceremonially toss that Christmas tree on the curb. And I, for me, this has always been a, a, the December 26th hollowness that I just, as a child, I hated so much because there was so much anticipation and this letdown. And then I discovered the 12 days of Christmas, and I was all excited about that. And just stretch it out. Some people say, save a gift until Epiphany. I think the Marxists tried to do the 12 days of Christmas. That does, doesn't work. It's, it's not impractical. I mean, it is impractical. But nevertheless, um, you can stretch this out. But then I'm now discovering as many of you have discovered, that this thing stretches for a long time. And so when you retire this Christmas tree, any holdouts for Candlemas go to February 2nd? That would be truly impressive. You got to, pardon me? But the Mercs, you have to pay five garbage sticker tickets for that. That's why I don't have the courage. So, but I'm glad that someone is of, of true faith in this room. That's wonderful. So, so and, and if you really did put it out on December 26th, Lord have mercy upon you. That would be really bad. But it, so we're, we're, stretching, we're stretching it out. Wheaton College, Tim Larson shared with us, had exams on December 26th when it was first founded. And that sounds cruel to us, but why did they have exams on December 26th? Well, they didn't do Christmas. That, that, was a, that was popery. And thankfully, we've now come around to realizing the importance of Christmas. Evangelicals resisted that for so long. And that's 100 years ago. We didn't do Christmas. 40, 20, maybe even 15 years ago, a lot of people in this town who are evangelicals wouldn't have done Lent, Right? Well, we've recovered that. We know it's not just works righteousness. If it's understood within the context of grace, it's an important practice. And what I'm suggesting is that Epiphany is the next season to be discovered. Okay? This is the one that will illuminate your January that needs to be illuminated. This is a sea where it's, just, it's cold, it's dark, it's, it's winter without Christmas, to, to quote the white witch. And, but it doesn't have to be. It's winter with Epiphany. That's the goal. Basil the Great, one of the great early church fathers of the East. Could anyone be so lacking in sensibility and so ungrateful as to not join us in all our gladness, exaltation, and radiant joy? Not Christmas joy. He's talking about Epiphany, the spillover of Christmas. This feast belongs to the whole universe. Stars cross the sky. Wise men journey from pagan lands. Earth receives its Savior in a cave. Let there be no one without a gift to offer. This is a great time for hospitality, for inviting people into your homes. We've got chalk for the blessing of your homes right here that we will soon hand out. And let no one be without gratitude as we celebrate the salvation of the world, the birthday of the human race. Wait, wasn't the human race around a long time before Jesus? Well, we didn't know what it meant until the true human, the first human, actually appeared. And that is Jesus. And we are only fully human in him. And we can only exhibit the virtues that we've been talking about in him. This is not a self-improvement project. This is what it means to be mystically united to Christ. So it's no longer dust you are and to dust you shall return. We will get there. 
But you are joined to heaven, and into heaven you shall be taken up. You might even argue that if you're going to get into Lent and into the penitence, and that's important, that if you don't start with Epiphany, you'll never have the energy to make it through Lent. <laughs> this, we're going to see some paintings. Our, our slides are coming, well, they're, they're a little faded. That's okay. Use your imagination. But this is a beautiful Giorgione image that art historians get lost on in thinking about the void and these three magicians. But in fact, what Giorgione was doing, this great Venetian artist, was referring to the Magi tradition. And at this time of year, I often like to talk about T.S. Eliot's Journey of the Magi and William Everson's The Wise. Now, many are familiar with T.S. Eliot's Journey of the Magi, this incredible poem that is his coming out party to all of his hipster friends like Hemingway. Yes, I am a Christian. I know you're going to hate it. I'm doing it anyway. A cold coming we had of it, just the worst time of the year for a journey, and such a long journey. His pilgrimage of faith was cast in the terms of the Magi. But the reason I want to skip over it, as important as it is, and I hope you love the poem, is that it does have this somber, Eliotic weight to it. But William Everson, who also was a famous beat poet and then became an important Dominican, and long, interesting story of that poet, he wrote a poem, I think, that almost is a response to T.S. Eliot's that also uses the Magi as his personal journey of faith. And this is my favorite. Miles across the turbulent kingdoms they came for it. But that was nothing. So much for Eliot's long journey. Oh, I don't care about the journey. It, was, it, it, it seemed like it didn't even happen. I was so excited to get there. That is not Everson. That was me. We'll go back to Everson. That was the least. Drunk with vision... <laughs> Rain stringing in the ragged beards. With a, when a beast lamed, they caught up another. Imagine your, your car gets broken down. Okay, find another car. Hail another car. Let's go. Get your Uber. Let's move it. Let, we cannot miss this experience. That is the way Everson described this. A different kind of personality. It's all online. Look it up. You'll love it. Because we have to think about these new ways of enhancing the epiphany season. We have many Christmas carols. We don't have enough of these. And I just wanted to conclude the last part. And they brought their camels breakneck into that village. I have never seen a camel gallop. <laughs> but he is describing that. And flung themselves down in the dung and dirt of that place and kissed the ground and... The tears ran on their faces where the rain had. <laughs> so he starts with the rain on the scraggly beard and then concludes with tears moistening that rain. So yes, there are people that have tried to get us excited about this season of Epiphany. This is our church year. This is the way we have mapped it out. This is sometimes put around our church. If you want a copy, let me know. We have catered the church year to the way that our building is making signals. You can see our epiphany star here. It's not just for the play. It's hung here for a reason, filling up this place with light. These ten lights symbolize the ten commandments that shine into your hearts when we say that opening collect. And the point is not that you're getting graded and you say, oh, I got to be this week. I'm doing well. The point is you and I fail every week. And the only light that's going to enable us to fulfill those Ten Commandments is that one, the light that leads to Jesus, the light that is Jesus, shining in us. So that's what that is there for. And we just have this small part of the, the church, and 
you have the icon of St. Andrew there, because Andrew is the first called disciple, and that is November 30th, the beginning of the church year. And then we zoom over to this other end, and you can see Mary with the Feast of the Presentation holding the doves. That's February 2nd, Groundhog's Day. We have demoted it to, but it's really rich and interesting. And so, in a sense, this church, uh, this part of our church up here is the epiphany part of our church as well, bookended with these two icons. And then, of course, that cross in the middle, because Jesus was a wanted man ever since he was born. They're trying to kill him from the beginning. Think of Sam's line during the Epiphany play where he talked about Herod cackling. I wanted Father Andrew to do it when he read the scriptures to say, because we had that so beautifully. Herod, who was encapsulating that ethos for us. But it's, it's chilling that there's a murderous rage hovering over this manifestation. Now again, to look at these beautiful images. And they're all fully available. Anglicanhistory.org is an extraordinary resource. I've mentioned it a bunch of times. We link to it on our website. Not only does it have all the great Caroline divines that you can read without having to buy the books, most of them are out of print, but it also has children's sections. The great people in the early 20th century who tried to make Epiphany living and alive for children, well, they're all there, as are each and every one of these fully PDFable. You can print them out, put them around your house, know that they're there. So again, these are the ones that I'm using. Why Epiphany? Awaiting our blessed hope, the appearing Epiphanion of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, Titus 2.13. It's simply the word for manifestation lifted right from the New Testament. 2 Timothy 1, the grace which God now has manifested through the appearing epiphanias of our Savior Christ Jesus who abolished death. And then finally, oh, not finally. This is not a new message Isaiah 60, which radiates from that lectern this morning, already has and will again, shows you that this was the plan all along. This is not a cultic, small, tribal thing. This is for everyone, and the only way we knew it was for everyone was through that peak, that distant peak that Isaiah saw that now has manifested in the person of Jesus. So hear that again, or, or think about it again, and read Isaiah 60. That says frankincense and myrrh. It's in there. <laughs> It says that these kings are going to come and do this. All the leaders of the world come to this king. When Easter is late, we have all six of these Sundays, boasts Enid Chadwick. Very excited about this. And it's interesting to point out that because Easter is really late, we have an eight-week spread for Epiphany in 2017. So we've got a lot to think about here. We're going all the way through February... Uh, February 26th with this season. So there's a lot of time to read that Everson poem, to think about this, to bring practices into your home, to pray for dreams, which we just heard about and some of you will hear about. And maybe a great way to pray and to have those dreams realized is to go and bless the fronts of your homes with this chalk so that God can meet you there and he can show up in your homes and my home in a new way. We'll talk about that. What you see on this are three different, it's really weird the way Jesus grows up in the church year, okay? So he's born, and then you have the feast of the naming of Jesus, 
okay? And you have then a really fast launch pad to his teaching ministry. You have the baptism of Christ, which is celebrated at this time, sometimes on this Sunday. And you have and also an emphasis on his speaking in the temple when he gets lost by his parents. And then finally, the turning the water into wine, the first miracle. So Jesus Christ is growing up quickly in this season, and then he's going to go into the desert and ultimately be crucified. But this is the time for him to grow in us in new ways. So that is what should be happening in Epiphany. We've talked about Jesus being born, but he's supposed to be born again, not just inside of us, to the reverse that famous evangelical trope. He's born again in us, and he is hopefully growing. And that looks like the virtues when it's done properly. And what's also wonderful and radiant, and we need the radiance in a cold winter, is that there's a little transfiguration thrown in as well. We celebrate the the transfiguration on August 6th. That's the big transfiguration day. But in its wisdom, the church year, which is just a wonderful systematic theology encapsulated for everyone to experience, to unpack these riches again and again for however many cycles the Lord gives us, the transfiguration is here as well. So you'll see it show up just in the sermons just before we get to Lent. And it's wonderful that that appears as well. Because that light, and look how interesting, isn't it, on the wonderful orthodox icons of the transfiguration, it kind of looks like the star, doesn't it? There's beautiful symbolism encoded into all these wild abstract shapes in the back. Abstract art was not an invention of the 20th century. It was already there in these icons behind Jesus in service to him. But that is, these are the things that we unpack as Christ is growing up, we hope, inside of each of us. I labor as a woman in childbirth, says Paul, until Christ is born in you. So that's what he needs to do. Christmas is just the start. Some of you know Robert Weber, beloved man who taught at Wheaton for a while. In his ancient future time, a nice resource for this, there are two sides to an epiphany spirituality. Christ manifested in us and through us. Through the Holy Spirit, we're able to enter into a spiritual union with Christ, the model of true humanity. And the practice that he recommends is the Jesus prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Prayed with such frequency in the Orthodox Church that it actually is timed to the heartbeat. And it even happens when you're sleeping, when you really get this down. And what's so interesting was to see Weber talk about that and say, I've begun to practice this. I've read the Way of the Pilgrim, the famous Eastern Orthodox classic. Of course, Franny and Zoe, right? That novel that talks about it as well. But the point is, is the meaning of it is that is the gospel in Nuce. There it is. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Bring that prayer into your home. You can do it with other verses as well, but that one is tried and true. He suggests that as a practice, but there are other practices too. These books, these are kind of like oral legend or oral tradition at All Souls. But I don't know if we ever talk about how important this is. And sometimes people did it you know, last year and you might have been here new. You don't know about it. But there are wonderful ways to bring these traditions into your home. A book of Feasts and Seasons by Bogle, a wonderful one that we've got. A continual feast by Vitz. This gives you a lot of recipes with which, and then you're not going to be able to do them all. We're busy people, but you can maybe squeeze one in. 
Okay, we've got this one is cooking with the saints, which I bought once. It's I, all the recipes don't taste very good. Um, <laughs> maybe that's because I think I tried cooking them once. And um, so nevertheless, it, it's there for, to, for all these different feast days within January. And if cooking is not your thing, some of you will know about drinking with the saints. Yeah, it's got, I mean, this is, uh, talk about a labor of love. This wonderful man, a friend of, of Alan Jacobs, our catechist emeritus, Michael Foley, has put different cocktail recipes for the entire, and there's lots for Epiphany in there. Yeah, there we go. We'll order it for the whole congregation. Okay. Um, and all through the day, all through the year, this one, um, I think, was ordered for us by all souls, but this is great for practices for children. And we incorporated some of these into our feast on uh, Friday. Um, and just to give you an idea of what else, again, the circumcision of our Lord, the first bloodletting of the Savior. <laughs> There's a lot going on there. I mean, this is, this, the church has long thought about how Jesus is wounded for the first time in his circumcision and has thought about that. Um, St. Hilary, a Scottish guy, not the other Hilary. Um, St. Wolfestan, this is, I, I, these, these are the people that, that the Anglo-Catholics wanted to emphasize. Agnes Vincent, the conversion of St. Paul on the 25th. And, of course, our martyr St. King, King Charles, uh, is thrown in on January 30th. Thomas Aquinas doesn't show up in this, but we should have him in there. Okay? And then the week of prayer for Christian unity occurs within this. Now, some of you might be saying, well, how do I get a hold of all these things? Um, do, do I you know, look at the Church of England daily prayer app and see what they mention? But you know, then I see it that morning and there's too late to do stuff. I recommend we do this in our family. It really is wonderful. The Fellowship of St. James, which is a Chicago area, area ministry that publishes Touchstone, Touchstone has the St. James calendar. And I've thought I could go without it for a year, but every time I go back, I'm like, I can't not have this calendar. Because what it does is it charts out the complexities of the church year for both the Catholics and the Orthodox, and we are somewhere between those. And so you can go through and you can see what is... So what's really important for ecumenical reasons is that one of the great dividing lines perhaps the aboriginal dividing line between East and West was the separation of the dates of Easter and those liturgies that were wrenched apart for very complicated reasons. Well, thankfully, the Fellowship of St. James will tell you when Orthodox Easter is and when Catholic Easter, which we are grafted onto, is sharing as well. So all those things are there. I think it's a wonderful thing to have in your home. You can just see who's the saint of this particular day. I love it because if it's Lent, I need those loophole days. I'm like, where's that saint who's gives me a big enough reason to not fast on a given day, but that shows you the dark corners of my heart. And so we, we move along. And we've got our camels in the back as well. And think of the multivalent symbols of those camels. Um, some of you wonder about them, and we've had conversations about this. We've sometimes incorporated them into our Epiphany pageant. The first way to think about them is that the wealthy suburban lifestyle is simply incompatible with many of the things that Jesus said. And that sits there, those stinking camels with those pyramid-like suburban backdrop that look like pyramids are just there to let you know and me know, watch out, the dangers of wealth. But I hope that it also reminds us that we throw ourselves upon the mercy of Jesus who preaches the law like nobody else so that you will be on your knees dependent upon him. But also think about those camels bringing wealth 
to this place. Maybe you can think about those camels as all souls for this time in your life may be the end of your journey. Maybe you rode that camel breakneck into this place and are encountering Jesus around this altar. I hope that's the case. So maybe you can think of this, the uh, pilgrim's rest. <laughs> that's what these camels might signify for you. Let's talk about the origins of Epiphany. Um, we're doing well for time. So we all have heard about how the early Christians were competing with Christmas. They were competing with Emperor Aurelius, who commemorated a Syrian god of the sun in 274. Maybe he himself, he's like, all right, let's just, we got to amp up the paganism here because this, we're, we're, this empire is falling apart. And the Christians took that as a challenge. And that is the origin of, by most accounts, where our December 25th celebration came from. Okay, so here is Aurelius personified as uh, the sun defeating his Persian enemies. <laughs> and so he's taking the gods of the people that he's destroying and saying, I am equated with that divinity. That's the good news that was spread throughout the Roman Empire to try to get you excited and happy. And it probably doesn't really stir your heart today to see Aurelius defeating his enemies claiming to be divine. Probably not much at all. And so I am grateful, as I hope you are, that the early Christians tweaked this just like Genesis tweaks the pagan worldviews of its day and says, oh, God isn't the son. He created it, right? And Christians said, all right, guess what? This sun god that you are now worshiping as the empire expands eastward, well, Jesus is the real thing. And what's amazing, I'm showing you images of the soul invictus, the invincible son that is exalted and deified. And if you go to St. Peter's Basilica and take the Scavi tour, that is you go down into the depths, into the catacombs, because for a long time we thought it's just legendary that St. Peter was actually buried here. And then in World War II, they did excavations and they found catacombs and they found the tomb of St. Peter and they said, wow, <laughs> it really was. This is the place where he was martyred. And above it, they built now the beautiful Baldacchino of Bernini. But in those catacombs, there is a mosaic of Jesus as the true son. <laughs> and that is brilliant resistance to pagan aggression. That's what it is. It's, it's an Aikido move, taking the force and <laughs> directing it in another direction. So that's where December 25th comes from. We know about that. But there's also another reason, I think, to be proud of December 25th. The second theory as to why this happens is because, of course, if you rewind nine months from December 25th, you have the Feast of the Annunciation, one of the early church feasts. And so that works perfectly. Jesus is conceived on March 25th, and he's born on December 25th. And the reason this has a lot to do with Epiphany is because the same origins can be traced for this season of the year. And I hope we are not embarrassed by those origins. As Martin said in a sermon once, if you want a pure language in which God can truly manifest himself, you're out of luck because the origin of Hebrew is pagan. But God is in the business of redemption. And that's what's going on with these feasts. So if this happens with December 25th, the two different ways of 
commemorating it, both the resistance to paganism and also this nine-month gestation of Jesus in the womb of Mary, well, and it shows up on early church calendars, in Epiphany, you have something different. This is late antique Rome, the Roman Empire as it was, and I'm showing you a computer reconstruction of the city of Alexandria, one of the great early Christian theological centers that, of course, they were in competition with the incredible Neoplatonist thinkers around them. And they were contesting what it meant to be a Christian in that context. That's where some of our greatest theology comes from. And in that city of Alexandria, down there, just at the mouth of the Nile, there was another feast that was inaugurated. You've heard of eons of time. Well, there's a god, Eon, or Ion, who celebrated in Alexandria January 5th through 6th. Okay? So you're a little concerned that these Christians are getting a little bit too aggressive. They're, they're multiplying too much. Let's have a feast for Aeon. And the thing that they told you about this deity was that you'll see him there surrounded in that orb by what? By the signs of the zodiac. So he has all time in his grasp. This is our fascination, that what it would mean to be able to bend time around yourself. That's what the movie Arrival is about. If we encountered aliens from it, wouldn't it be amazing if they knew how to get past this thing called time that we're in? And so maybe this is the equivalent of that. And say, hey, there's a guy, Ion, who is beyond time. And he has time in his grasp. He is to be trusted. Or he is to be trusted. And what I'm showing you is a beautiful dome in a church in the Mani Peninsula of Greece that has Jesus surrounded by the signs of the zodiac. That's what we begin. And you might think, well, is that the paganization of Christianity? No, it's the Christianization of paganism. How could you not do that? Faced with that challenge, how could you not respond and say, oh, I'll tell you who has time in total control, who was before time, the one who there was never something when he wasn't. Right? Jesus who always existed. He is the one in control of time. So I show that to say how epiphany is this response to a different kind of aggression and thankfully a deeply successful response. And so that's why they're tied together. It's tied together with Christmas. Now let's just look at a couple of different images. The Magi show up really early in Christian art history. This is a third century sarcophagus from the Vatican Museum, and there they are. And interestingly enough, we have church historians or church theologians who talk about the Epiphany. He said that it just says wise men in the Gospels, but Origen began to refer to the three of them, maybe for good reason, because there were three different gifts that are listed. So he says, okay, there were three. And um, gold as to a king, myrrh as to one who was mortal, and incense as to a god. And so they began to theologize about these gifts. And later, people started to think of the gold of virtue, the myrrh of suffering, a foreshadowing of his crucifixion, and the incense of prayer, frankincense. And a lot of times we look at that, oh, see, that's just accretions, barnacles on the ship of Scripture that we should just rip off because that's not helpful. Well, 
as long as you take it with a grain of salt, I think it actually can be helpful to think about this tradition. They then were deemed kings by Caesareus of Arles in the 6th century, maybe because of Psalm 72, may all kings fall down before him. And that's when they begin to really take on these new outfits that I particularly love. They're, the mosaics are absolutely the best um, in the way that the kings are decked out. It really gets tame in the Renaissance in comparison to these. And what's wonderful about this Ravenna mosaic is it's one of the great centers of mosaic work in Italy, an outpost of the Byzantine Empire, is that their names are listed. So you see Balthazar, who was by tradition a Babylonian scholar, Melchior, a Persian, and Caspar, an Indian. So all the wisdom of the world finds its culmination in the incarnation, in the doctrine of the Trinity. And so there they are gathered together. Maybe the wildest magi of all is in, are in Santa Maria Maggiore, another beautiful late antique mosaics. And I'm looking at this one little corner here. And these, I, I like to call these guys the disco magi. Look at those outfits. They're beautiful. That's the early Christian tradition of these guys symbolizing every possible quest for human wisdom. Do you want to study Buddhism? Do you want to study Hinduism? Does that seem naughty to you or moving outside the boundaries? Go with the knowledge that anything good you find there will find its manifestation, its culmination in the person of Jesus. The Magi can perhaps assist you as exemplars in that understanding. We need not be afraid of other systems of faith. This is a view from Cologne in Germany. You can see a little star there. And what I'm showing you is a view from the top of Cologne Cathedral because that is the place where the Magi are traditionally buried. They have the bodies, so they claim. And there's a glorious altar that you can visit there with Nicholas of Verdun, this incredible goldsmith who created this glorious place for their remains to reside. And there you have the Magi gathered together. We've got the slow archaeographical tradition has the parable of the journey of the human life beginning in youthful arrogance. In the Middle Age, you start to question some of your ambitions and say, what is this really all about anyway? And then you move in the direction of humility. I like to call that the epiphany curve. As you, that's the way life should look. It shouldn't be the opposite. right? It should, it should move in this direction. And just to give you a few of these, what's so interesting is as the great artists of the Renaissance put this together, making the epiphany and the kings real for their time, they made the same decisions that we have to make when we do the play here. Almost, they're like, well, how do we show them wandering and moving? Well, that's what Gentile de Fabriano had to decide as he moves in the back there. You see them off in the distance looking at the star and then starting their journey moving along and then finally making it to Bethlehem, the very same things that we think about as we put this play together. And there they are at the end gathered together and you can see that arc again of the slow humbling yourself before God, the pattern of the Christian life. The Atlantic a couple uh, last year talked about the, the midlife crisis. Don't worry, you'll, you'll have this. If you just push through it in your 60s, everything's going to be happy. And, and I, I like to suggest that it's actually the Christian faith suggests no. Um, that's not what life is about. Life is about that happiness that comes from humbling yourself before the goodness of God. 
Now, the question is, what are we going to do to celebrate it, to think about it as a church? Um, fortunately, we're not Russian, okay? Um, this, that, that is faith. That is true faith. This really goes on in Russia because Epiphany is, in some senses, is eclip, eclipses Christmas in the Orthodox tradition. And so we have, they actually carved, we could do this at Elliott Lake maybe or Lincoln Marsh. We could give it a shot. Even in Siberia, they do this. Because the baptism of our Lord, to remind you of your own baptism, I mean, this would have a powerful effect. And we, just to say, well, I, I, I have died to my old self as I plunge into the water. Everybody does it, even the children. Okay, it's intense. And we are, yeah, oh, yeah, no. See, that's the thing. I, I'm looking at these pictures. I'm like, oh, I'm so glad I go to All Souls. Um, so, but we are going to ask you to do something. And... Um, this is a wonderful, dramatic photograph of what it looks like to have the blessing of your home. And it would be quite taxing to have all the clergy go to every single home. And so we are going to have Father Martin bless these chalks here, and then you can do it yourself. Now, how do you do it yourself? You take this blessed chalk, and you have the blessing cards, and you write 20 and the and then a cross, so the four crosses are the four seasons. Remember, Jesus is Lord of time, not aeon. <laughs> and that's what you're reminding yourself of. And then CMB for the three magi. Just a few more examples of how simple it can be on your door. I love that house. Totally want that house. Okay, uh, more, just right above your window if you want. You can do your bedroom. And Mel, Casper, Melchior, and, and Balthazar are the, are the three. And then, wonderfully, in Latin, some people have turned that into Christe Mansionem Benedicta. Christ bless this house. So we can think of it in that respect. So what we'll do right now is, Father Martin, would you mind coming up? And we can bless, the, and you've got your blessings in hand. And we have the liturgical box, a special liturgical box. <laughs> what a service. I mean, what, what, like, wow. And while we're passing these out, 
and you've got the liturgy to do at your home while you do the, the writing as well, um, I would like now to, uh, we've got a little bit of time for questions, comments, or other traditions that we're missing out, or challenges to do the full polar plunge if, if you think that, that that is what is required of us. But yes, sir, Brad. Epiphany, the traditional place for the conclusion of Epiphany is February 2nd, the feast of the presentation where, where Mary and Joseph present Jesus in the temple. So that is the place of conclusion. But what is, I'm realizing now is that that is a highlight moment, but that's within Epiphany. Because when Epiphany is formally concluded, you have the Lent, Lent begins. So I am now realizing that it does go in this case, eight weeks all the way through. Am, am I wrong about that? Oh, I don't. Okay. 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 So, so then, so, and those, what Martin just referred to were, were the feasts of the celebration of the Babylonian, well, not celebration, <laughs> the lamentation of the Babylonian captivity of you, they were exiled for so long, 70 years, and so there's a, there's a time in the, in the church calendar when we begin to look ahead and the weight of Lent starts to slowly move in like a cloud into the church year. And so keep your eye out for those, but we are for our purposes, we're going to go for it and say Epiphany all the way through the beginning of Lent, which is pretty late this year. Candlemas is coming. So that February really needs help. It really needs our help. And so this is going to be a way to bring light into the church year at Candlemas. And the reason it's called Candlemas is because there were so many candles used in this festivity to celebrate the Feast of the Presentation. And that is, it, it was such a big deal that it got connected with that. So the candles are not going away. Those are our Advent candles. They're going to come back because light is that emphasis of that manifestation the light for the whole world that Jesus signifies so look forward to that to replace your groundhog's day I like to sometimes imagine Mary um, sacrificing not doves but groundhogs to um, to bring those strange traditions together but it just shows you the poverty of American culture that we had to come up with that instead of uh, taking advantage of this great richness and if we do it well then future Walmarts will be able to ruin that one as well so other questions or comments about Epiphany? I mean, we need to ha raise children that are going to have, yeah, Christmas was fine, but oh, those Epiphany memories, right? Wouldn't that be great? We'll get there. We'll get there. Um, and even if you don't have children, you can have extraordinary Epiphany memories as well. Come on, folks. Any other questions or Epiphany guides for us? Ways to get through this? Concerns? Yes. We could work that in. We could, we could think about they're going east. The Kenya team, the, these are our people who are going. And here's the thing. Okay, I've got so much more that I'm, that I'm holding back on. But one of the wonderful things is that this is one of my favorite. It's a glorious Roger van der Weyden with you have almost Jesus is the star. I have, there's, this is wonderful caption contest, like, you know, did they, it, it looks like 
You know, who knows what's going on with this. But Jesus is guiding the Magi. And what's wonderful is that in the middle, you have, in Roger van der Weyden, you have the patron who has inserted himself into the nativity feast. Right there, he wants, do not put me on the sidelines, he says to Roger van der Weyden. I want to be as close to Jesus as possible. That's what's going on in the middle. As Jesus is laid on the ground, like in Joel Sheasley's images, image of Jesus in the fifth floor of the Billy Graham Center, laid on the asphalt ground of Wheaton. And then on the sides, you've got not only the Magi there looking to Jesus, but you have also have the Tibertine Sibyl. Okay? Now, who's that? The land had a voice in paganism. Now, do we just abandon all that in Christianity? Wait a second. What the Queen, what the, what the Tiber, the River Tiber Sibyl, the, the, the oracle of the Tiber, she's not destroyed. She sees Jesus. She's looking out the window and sees the Ark of the Covenant and she preaches the good news to Augustus. Guess what? You're not the gospel. He is. It's an extraordinary twist. And these Sibyls show up again and again. These are Michelangelo's Sibyls on the Sistine Chapel. The Sibyl of Libya, the wisdom of the land. What does it do? It points to Jesus. The Sibyl of, the, of Delphi, the oracle. She ultimately realizes this pagan woman who experienced the gods, who God really is. What an extraordinary suggestion. And I like to think of the Native American tradition in this land as doing the same thing. And if you don't believe me, you can read Stephen Charleston's The Four Vision Quests of Jesus, where he says, my fellow Native Americans told me that Christianity had to be abandoned for me to be truly Native. And I said, no, I can only be fully Native when I worship Jesus Christ. It's an extraordinary book. We're starting a course examining Christian theologies of Native America as we move ahead. And the reason this has something to do with Africa is because one of the downsides, one of the negative aspects of epiphany images of the Magi is that oftentimes the youngest of the kings is African. As if this, and you could see how that can be interpreted in a racist way. But what's amazing is that considering the expansion of the church from 1910, where that large piece of the pie is Europe, and then in 2010, you have the Americas and Africa. Christianity, its future is in Africa. And so when we go there, <laughs> we are not going there to teach. We are going there to learn. And so we can think about that, uh, one of the journeys of the Magi, going to see them and see Christ manifested in that part of the world. Yes, sir. That's an amazing book. The Pipe and Christ. It's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. It's doing to the pagan tradition of Europe to the tradition of this part of the world. And they got that service. Why shouldn't we offer it to them as well? Extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah. There's an openness to the spirit there that we don't have here, which is maybe why we're being eclipsed by them as it should be. Let's leave it at that, folks. Thank you so much.